We can learn so much from biology and how it adapts to changes in environment. Taking lessons from coronavirus, I'm keen to figure out the mechanisms in which viruses adapt and mutate as a result. In this episode, we want to answer three fundamental questions. What drives evolution? What role does the environment play in evolution? And how can we apply this to designing complex evolving economic systems? Before we get started, let's have a quick crash course on biology. Genes are the basic unit of hereditary information. They are the language that, the na that nature uses to build, maintain, and repair organisms. It keeps information and data to build proteins so that we can function normally like you listening to the podcast now. In simple words, genes, genes are basically ingredients and herbs. They follow a recipe to cook a delicious meal and then we get to eat that meal. Initially, I wanted to talk about DNA and its evolution since the beginning of Homo sapiens, but that takes hundreds, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. So just focus on the evolution of virus instead. Viruses, are, viruses specifically RNA-based virus, evolves a lot faster, and they are they're adapting more to the changes in the environment a lot quicker. So the specific virus that we want to talk about today is coronavirus. Coronavirus is a hot topic of this period. It causes, it's the cause of common cold. Now, this strain of coronavirus is different because it is able to transmit from animals to humans and then between humans. This is the part of evolution that we want to discuss today. There are many types of coronavirus. We have SARS, which was a transmission of virus from bats to civic cats to humans. We have MERS, which is a transmission from camels to humans. And now we have the COVID-19, which is a transmission from bats to humans. Some also say that it may come from pangolins, but that's still, that's still not peer reviewed. The general consensus is still that this vi these viruses or these types of coronavirus transmitted from animals to humans and then between humans. So the then between humans part is something that we're gonna to discuss today. Now, we talk about viruses changing. There are three ways viruses can change. Firstly, it's through mutation. Second is through pseudo-recombination. And thirdly, it's through recombination. Today, we just want to focus on mutation. There are two ways viruses can mutate. You, it, it, it can, number one, mutate human's genome, or two, mutate or change its own genome. This virus that we're talking about, this COVID-19, changes its own genome. Mutating human genome is hard. It's very, very tough. It's like changing the entire recipe that you downloaded online. Changing your own genome is a lot easier. It's like just changing specific ingredients to cook your meal. Instead of using butter to cook this chocolate cake, you are substituting butter with oil instead. It's easier to change. Now, before we get all paranoid about mutation and changing and everything, a good note is that mutation is a natural part of the virus life cycle. Viruses always mutate, always. And it's okay because a lot, there are a lot of errors in mutation and in general, it's not that dangerous. And this, is, this mutation is also really helpful to help us to understand how virus travels and change. So for example, this is really good in terms of biology, biology or epimedia. So this, for example, this is really good in biology because then we can understand how viruses change, how it adapts, and 
a lot of game theorists are using, are looking at how cancer cells change or how viruses adapt to look at how can we stop this evolution of cancer cells in patients. And there are a lot of different uh, mechanisms at play, but let's not go so deep into that. Let's just talk about the general idea and how we can apply this to, to designing ecosystems. So as the virus evolves, it mutates. So for mutation to become more prominent, multiple genes have to mutate. This means that all the different individual genomes that the virus has, has to mutate and coordinate in the mutation and agree to the change. As viruses evolve, they mutate its genes structure. What it does, as I said, one of the key things is that it binds human, humans, or it is able to transmit between humans. How does it do that? It binds to human proteins, replicates, and spread to other humans. So let's take a look at the example of dumplings. Dumplings has a general structure. It's flour wrapped around meat. Then you boil, cook, steam, fry, whatever, to eat it. Now, it changes, mutates, evolves, according to the various countries' culture and environment. For example, we have Indian momos, Polish pierogies, Japanese gyoza, Chinese xiaozi, or even Italian ravioli. These countries have specific dumplings that have bind to humans. It replicates, spreads, and becomes the new norm of cultural food in that country. In the same way, viruses adapt, change to the different environment that it's exposed to, and when it succeeds in mutation, it becomes the new norm. So it becomes the virus that's stable in humans that can be transmitted from humans to humans because hum other humans adapt to it. So let's talk a little bit more about this virus. This virus is specifically an RNA virus. Before we talk about RNA, quick crash course, another crash course on RNA versus DNA. Think of DNA like a top chef, like Gordon, Gordon Ramsay. He has all the recipes and methods in his head. To cook a dish, he has his recipe book or he just has all the recipes in his head. Think of his brain like a master blueprint. He has all the information available and he can just extract whatever information that's needed to cook roast pork or to cook um, a Sunday morning roast. In the same vein, DNA is also a master blueprint. It has all the recipes to build the different proteins that our DNA needs and it has all the information like genetic data inside. Then you have RNA. RNA would be people like me, amateur chef that cook that can cook after watching one YouTube episode. It's very easy to follow. All I have to do is just transcribe what he says and replicate it. So I'm basically translating the specific recipe into steps, then I can follow them. Now, the difference is that with DNA, with Gordon Ramsay, he has all the information. He has all the recipes in his head. For me, I just need a specific recipe. Today, I wish to, to, to cook steak and I can just follow his recipe to cook whatever steak that he's talking about or, or like Beef Wellington. So I'm not going, I'm not going to, to download all the recipes that he has and then transcribe all of them so that I can cook the Beef Wellington. I'm just noting the specific recipe needed, watch that specific episode, transcribe them and then create them. Sometimes I forget a step or an ingredient, sometimes I, I miss it, or sometimes I cook it in the wrong way, or I didn't, I didn't preheat the oven, or I didn't put it at the right temperature. So, because I don't have all the data at the back of my head, 
I'm just looking, watching one episode, taking it, taking all the information, and then trying to create. So during this process, I make some mistakes. In the same vein, RNA is also the same. RNA doesn't have all the information. It just takes the specific information needed from DNA to build the protein or to build the structure and that can add into the whole um, DNA structure that you, you always see, you know, the double helix curve. So it only takes the information that it needs. And, and thus it can make mistakes and mistakes also leads to evolution, leads to mutation. So this COVID-19 is an RNA virus. That means it's easier to make mistakes, mutate and change. Long story short, the virus binds the ACE2 to initiate membrane fusion and to enter human cells. In simple terms, just think of me wearing makeup, having uh, and putting on Gordon Ramsay's clothes, and pretend to be a chef like him in his kitchen to cook for his guests. So, something to note is that RNA-based virus or RNA-based viruses like the COVID virus or the flu tend to mutate tend to mutate around one hundred times faster than DNA-based ones, and that's also why I, I'm talking about this episode as from a virus perspective of how viruses change and evolve and how can we apply this to designing economic systems compared to DNA? Because DNA means changing the entire structure, changing the entire blueprint. Whereas RNA is changing specific aspects that could affect the entire um, environment or entire ecosystem in general. Because remember, DNA is the whole blueprint. There's a lot of aspects to change. Whereas RNA is just one specific thing that changes all the time and can create very lasting impacts when all the other cells and genomes and, and um, <clears throat> protein and genetic code agree to this change. So moving on to, to part two, let's unpack some fundamental drivers to virus evolution patterns. The two, two drivers that we're gonna talk about, especially, especially for um, this RNA COVID-19 virus. Mutation occurs as part of evolution. That's very true. Mutation always occurs, mutation is always ongoing. However, it does not last. Biologically, about 87 to 95% of mutation of mutations are just removed from negative selection. Because mutation can't survive when they're not beneficial. The mechanisms of evolution is where organisms that are better to adapt to the environment survives basic Darwinian theory. That means we have to adapt as, the, as evolution happens, as environment changes, and not allow the environment to suit what we want. And because RNA is such versatile, it's able to change so easily, it can just change based on the, the different environment. Example of environment in which RNA changes is that from bats, you know, the, the environment and the DNA or the genetic structure of bats is very different from humans. And this change is where um, COVID-19 virus is adaptable to this change in the environment. And it adapts to the human, human cells and human genomes, which is why we can spread between humans. The other thing is the network effects of mutation. It is easier to mutate because of network effects. With this coronavirus, there are two strains, the L-type and the S-type. And the transmission rates are very different from different strains. The L-type is more dominant and it spreads a lot quicker when you are interacting with different, different people. So that's why they talk a lot about staying at home and trying to flatten the curve, because when you interact less with people, you reduce the network effects, 
you reduce your contact with other people and you reduce the probability of spreading or the probability of passing the virus somewhere else. So network effects can be for good and for bad. Network effects just allow something to spread a lot quicker. If it's something that's good, if it's a good um, thing that we want to keep spreading, then we want to increase network effects. If something that's not so good like this virus, we want to reduce the spread of it, then stay at home, reduce virus, cut off connections, and contain the virus within, within a specific um, ecosystem like your house. So let's talk a little bit more about the resolution mechanisms because you know, sometimes things happen, shit happens, it's, it's normal, it's just life. What we can do is to look at how can we resolve that? How can we, how can we prevent these, these things from happening? Or when they happen, how can, how can we reduce the collateral damage? So the first one is having proper resolution mechanisms. The increasing number of viral sequences has led to um, unprecedented observations of viruses all around the world. All scientists and, and epidemiologists and biologists, they're all looking at at the virus and having a lot of observations, sharing them around the world. So now we have better understanding of the factors that lead to the virus's evolution. So it's almost like signaling, or we're looking at the different signals and factors before to understand how the virus change. And how is this useful? This is useful because research is designing new strategies to govern the viral evolution and control the threats. So, as long as there's some signals that this is how the virus changes, how the virus mutates, we can contain it and control it. The next thing is modeling. Modeling is something that everyone talks about. In financial markets, you talk about modeling. In marketing, you talk, to, you talk about modeling. In supply chain, you talk about modeling. And modeling is just using past data to kind of predict what the future is going to be and what the, what the, tra the, the tra tra trajectory of the features is looking is going to look like. In the same way, we can apply modeling in biology and virus evolution. So uh, now we can now we can understand virus evolution through computer computational modeling based on experimental data. And this is through you know computer science. Some people like to use AI, like to use machine learning, whatever it is. There's a lot of data now that we can use to model and predict the future, the future traction of how, how, the, how the virus look, look like. And this is also very useful when we are pairing that with different policies in place and how different, how different governmental policies can either flatten the curve, which is part of modeling, or can reduce, can, can help to maintain the demand of hospital beds and ICU beds and, and hosp hospitals capacity to to contain the virus. So there are many different uses of modeling and, and modeling can come as different, parts of different um, gatekeeping ways to make sure that the virus is properly contained and resolved. So now let's move to the last part, which is probably the most interesting. How can you apply these lessons to designing economic systems? Firstly, we can understand the speed of change and mutation over time. We can estimate um, the clock, so the time needed, and to track the spread. This is very, it's very useful in times like this, where we see how different systems react. So coming back to economic systems, coming back to designing, um, you know, token systems or blockchain-based systems or virtual systems, digital systems, we can see how, how, different, um, how different participants react when something happens 
in the outside world or track how fast it changes, how fast people react. So an example will be in decentralized finance. Uh, just a month ago, that sounds like it's a long time ago, there, there is a BZX, um, I would call it a hack, it's more of an exploitation with, with uh, flash loans. And you can see that the, the speed of change has increased tremendously because everything is just interconnected in the digital space and everything is just pretty instantaneous. So this is very good. I won't call this a fault. It's more of like an experiment where we understand the speed of change, understand the different, the different um, gatekeeping things that we need. For example, um, a stop loss or uh, different pricing to, to trigger a stop loss. And this is also what beta testing is for. So we can better manage things when shit happens. And you know what? Shit always happens. There's, there's going to be black zone effects. There's going to be things that's unprecedented. It just happens. And, and they're always going to happen. So what we could do is to design better, better strategies to contain these, um, to contain the speed of change, to contain the mutation and evolution that we do not want. The second is understanding breaking points. So this is where when a virus or a bad actor just messes mess things up. So some questions to ask would be, you know, how long can the can can it be deployed successfully before a resistant breaking strain of the virus emerges? There are multiple factors, including virus virus resist, resistance mechanism, the number of mutations sufficient to generate um, the restraints, and the effects of these mutations on the virus fitness. Everything can contribute to the estimate of resistance durability. So to put it in context of, of you know, back to what we talk about designing ecosystems, is that you have to understand where things fail. You have to understand the different breaking points and to understand the different, how, how good your resistance mechanism is, how good your resolution mechanism is, how good the governance mechanism is, and how, how quickly will it change or how much, what's the percentage of um, coordination that needs to happen before things will break. So this is why we talk a lot about, you know, the whole level of centralization versus decentralization. Because when you have a high level of centralization, you don't even need to collude anymore. You just need to get three people to come together. I mean, you don't need to collude in big form. You just get three people to agree on something and it could break the system very easily. And that's why everyone in the blockchain space have always been focused, focusing a lot on decentralization. So to put it into context, you know, Justin Sun from Tron wants to buy um, EOS, if I'm not wrong, and oh, to, to buy Reputation, the, the company. And he will take all the power, all the voting power as well. And now he doesn't really need to collude. He himself with, you know, two friends that own a lot of exchanges have so much voting power that you can build the most um, resistant uh, mechanism design and governance mechanisms or rev uh, resolution mechanisms. And it still doesn't, it still doesn't work because this bad actor or this bad um, colluding group are just is just going to be the breaking point. It's just going to be the tipping point that everything just fails because they don't have to follow um, a lot of these things in place. And so this is something quite important to remember: is how do you to what level of centralization, centralization or decentralization is needed to maintain the health of your ecosystem. Thirdly, is to build resistance. So when shit happens, you can estimate the duration of how long that can last. And this resistance is not going to just be one, one resistance. There are different resistance barriers. So for example, 
you know, in the past couple of weeks, the whole world is just melting down. And that's that's very evident in the in the financial market that we're looking at. So the S&P has been, has been hitting the, the short circuit breaker three times. And so the S&P, in general, when trade falls below uh, 7%, when there's a, yeah, when the trade falls below 7%, then the market will stop trading for 15 minutes. Then 15 minutes later, it will resume again. But this S&P is not just once one resistance, right? It's not just 7%. You have 7%. You have 13%, you have 20%, you have different resistance breakers. And this is something that is very important to consider in when we're building different um, economic systems. It could be for decentralized finance systems, it could be for supply chain systems, it could be for insurance systems. The, the fact that we're using smart contracts to automate so many of these processes, we're focusing on automation that we're not having enough human inputs. That's okay when things are going good, right? Things are beautiful, you've got unicorns and roses and rainbows, and everything will flow as, as it is because it's very efficient and the automation works as it is because there isn't much risk involved. However, during shit times, during downtimes, during your bull runs, smart contracts will automate the same way as, as it was designed to, but because there's so many other factors that needs to be considered, you have to think of the, the external damages, the secondary impacts of all these actions, that automation might not be the best way out. So instead of having just full automation during shit times, you know, to build your resistance, it has to have a combination between part automation, part human. So when something, when something happens, you have automation to stop it, have humans coming in for, for a period of time, then allow automation to continue again. And that's how humans and machines get to work together to form better governance, to form better resistance for different ecosystems. And lastly, blockchain is like our genomes, specifically uh, pathogens. A pathogen's job is to invade the immune system, to create more copies of itself and spread to the host. It's similar to blockchain copying the same data to every peer and distribute this data. So, you know, blockchain and human DNA or, or human genomes is, is very, very, very similar. And we have, we have a specific uh, set of information that needs to be copied. So DNA has the same thing. You want to copy the DNA and that's how our cells regenerate and how we heal and everything. And blockchain also has the same copy where it's, it's immutable. That's the whole idea of blockchain. You have one, one data set, it's immutable. It's just being copied and shared with everyone. It's also, it, it's also about coordination. How do you coordinate all your different genomes to come together to build your different protein strain so that we can build this beautiful double helix um, structure, which is our DNA. Similarly, in blockchain space, we have different participants or different decentralized individual users working together to, to, form, to form or to coordinate actions towards building this outcome that we want. So in DNA, the outcome is this double helix, beautiful structure. In your ecosystem or your blockchain ecosystem is whatever you want, you want your ecosystem to be, to be building. So it could be, you know, whatever social optimal function that you're looking at or building um, an ecosystem that allows trade to flow easily, allows um, more authority to people, reduce intermediaries, whatever you're doing. It's about coordinating with different, coordinating together and, and um, working together to reach that outcome. So that's, that's the ideas of week of, that's some ideas of how we can apply these lessons to 
designing economic systems. And in conclusion, if DNA is the master blueprint for our cells that defines our body, beings, and lives, the design of economic systems is the DNA for virtual systems. It is the master blueprint for our systems that defines the business model and revenue for economic systems. Like viruses, ecosystems will continue to undergo co-evolution co over a long period of time. Sometimes a benign relationship built, develops and the virus doesn't really cause a negative impact, like a disease. Other relationships are negative and they can cause very serious diseases to human bodies. And this is where you have different bad actors coming in to destroy the, the ecosystems that's being built. The two main factors that changes the characteristics of organisms are the blueprint of ecosystem and the environment itself. And agents determine the makeup of the ecosystem. Agents will be your different users buying into your, your token ecosystem. We define the blueprint, we can define the blueprint via governance and design. And then we can coordinate these agents, which is, you know, coordinate your, could be your game players, your investors, your suppliers, your, your oracles. We can coordinate all these agents, or we have to coordinate all these agents. Hence, it's very important to have community feedback, forums, company updates, and, and everything so that information will, will not be scarce information will be freely available for anyone who wants it. This also shows this also this um, this epidemic, you know, it shows how how important it is to be prepared to have proper governance, to have you know proper education, to have early detection of signaling, and so when we have all these in place, we talked about um, building resistance, where we have all these resistance and resolution mechanisms in place, then we don't have to pay for a heavier price at the end, and heavier price will be you know failures in systems, disbelief in the structure. Um, having to restart everything from scratch or, or a lot of different other, other um, negative impacts. So this is why I, I focus so much on governance because when we have proper governance, we are prepared, we are able to defend all these external risks and external um, black swan uh, activities. So we can still contain the situation and we don't have to pay with a lot of negative um, social payment and financial payment in the future. So now before I end, I just, I want to start with this thing where every, every time I end an episode, just have these three discussion takeaways worth pondering. If you have some ideas, you can just write them down in um, the YouTube comments or, yeah, I guess just YouTube comments or uh, maybe the, the newsletter's comments so we can be discussing them. So three discussion takeaways worth pondering. Number one, should we have a homogeneous ecosystem? system. Because when it's homogeneous, it's easier to coordinate. But it runs counter to evolution and natural selection. We need mutation and variation to enable a company or ecosystem to con continuously evolve over time. Most companies present 100 years ago don't really exist anymore. However, if we have a homogeneous, um, when we have a homogeneous ecosystem, it's a lot easier to coordinate between amongst people. And it's a lot easier to to grow the ecosystem a lot easier to ensure that everyone is doing the right action to grow. The second is, when we talk about governance, who do we define as the judge to which ecosystem actions are good or bad and which to promote via the incentive mechanisms? 
So what is good for me might be bad for someone else. But who am I to say that this mechanism, you know, as a designer, who am I to say that this, this uh, incentive mechanism is the right mechanism when it could not be right to someone else? So another thing to consider in this part, question two is the veil of ignorance to be added to, to increase the complexity of your policies or of your incentive mechanisms. And thirdly, should we limit or encourage greater divergence as the ecosystem grows? So greater divergence will be in the decentralized governance mechanisms. For example, um, to allow different parties to come in to govern or to allow a greater variety of people to, to be governing the, the system so that we have greater divergence and greater voice. Ideally, that's the case, but at the same time, you know, you have information asymmetry, you have different in experiences, different in authority, uh, different objectives that you want to achieve. So this is still quite a contentious topic and I think it's worth discussing. So if you have any, any ideas or any thoughts, just put them in the comments below and we'll be discussing them. Until then, see you in episode three.